This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make a conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We spend a lot of time here talking about the foundations and the implications of our faith. That's kind of the, the, the core unifying factor that ties all of the shows here together. But I think sometimes as we think about foundations and implications, we can tend to get into an analytical frame of mind, thinking that everything can be parsed out with deep thinking and philosophy. And if we think of the arts in any way, we think of them as kind of a luxury that we can get to once we've figured out the deep questions. And the truth is kind of the opposite of that. The truth is that we use the arts, we use poetry and music and literature to help us parse out and think through those deeper questions that sometimes it's hard to get at when we're not approaching it in a more fluid, artistic way. Our guest today is no stranger to the arts and to using the arts to think deeply about deep topics. Dr. David Russell Mosley is a PhD, has a PhD in theology from the University of Nottingham and currently teaches literature, theology, and philosophy at a Catholic classical high school in the inland of the Pacific Northwest uh, on the other side of the mountains from me where I contend it's not quite as pretty. The trees don't go quite as tall and it does get quite a bit hotter in the summer. Uh, David is the author of Liturgical Entanglements, The Green Man on the Edges of Elfland, A Fairy Tale for Grownups and Being Deified, Poetry and Fantasy on the Path to God. Today we're talking about a new book, The Love That Moves the Sun and Other Stars. It's available on Wiffenstock. And we talked with uh, David about this a couple of years ago in October as we were in the middle of um, kind of a Vatican-announced little focus on Dante. And then there were a number of initiatives here in the U.S. as people were reading through the Divine Comedy over the course of a certain amount of time. During that time, David was going through the the Divine Comedy and writing poetic reflections on each of the cantos using the same style of poetry, the same the, the, the meter and rhythm and everything else as Dante himself had used. And that book is now completed, and we're here to talk about it today. David, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about, before we get into the meat of this specific book, uh, the Divine Comedy has for many years been a source of um, of interest, of of curiosity, and in some ways, really a, a point of forming popular theology about the the, the last four things. Mm-hmm. Some people will will cite something as being the, the the official position of the church, and really, it's just Dante. So I'm curious as you approach this, and you're rereading this, and you're not only reading it but reflecting on it through poetry. What were the things that really stood out to you that helped you maybe clarify the four last things for yourself? Um, and as you process that, not only in light of Dante, but also in light of what the church is teaching. It's true. Um, I've So I've been reading Dante for a while, right? Both before I became Catholic and then after. I've actually been teaching the Divine Comedy for many years. Uh, mm-hmm. And so... That's really what what this book came out of was, uh, 
you know, many years of reading through Dante and just having that time, right, that's so often not afforded to uh, most other people, right, to dig into a text so deeply because you have to read it and you have to read it multiple times and you have to know it well enough to teach it to high school students. Um, and, you know, I swear, if you want to get to know a text, find a way that you have to teach it to high schoolers because that's the best way to really dig into it because you've got to figure out what's actually going on so I can explain it to a bunch of kids who are confused. Um, so in reading it, right, there is, as you say, there's so much uh, in there and there's so much that's affected the popular imaginary, right? That That sense of what is hell actually like, right? The number of times I've heard there must be a special circle in hell for fill in the blank, right? Or you've just invented a new circle of hell. Heck, I think I just saw one today, which was just about like, not gluttony, just simply being fat was now going to become this new circle of hell because it's such a terrible thing in other people's minds. <laughs> I'm in trouble. As, as <laughs> am I. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, people often read it and that's kind of where they stay, right? And you can especially tell when that's the case because they'll stop at the inferno, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's the, the, the canticle, right? That's the whole confined poem dealing just with hell within the divine comedy that most people are like, oh yeah, I read that in high school, but I stopped at the inferno. And so... You know, part of what I wanted to do is also just get people to read the rest of it, right? There's there's so much more to it. And if you're only paying attention to kind of the literal level of the story, right, then you're missing out on a huge part of what Dante is trying to do, which is get us to go on this journey with him, right? to look at sin alongside of him to look at how sin is cured and to look at what the reward is for giving in to God. I want to stop there for just a moment because you, you brought up people who have read this book. Um, you, you say that so many of them, uh, a certain percentage of them have, they stopped after the inferno, mm -hmm. right? They, they, they didn't keep reading. Uh, and so they missed the, the whole, really, the whole point of the story, right. because they're focused on on that first part, and they never make it to the place of of restoration and communion. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I stopped you there is because while that's true of the actual book, it feels so often, even in our Catholicism, that so many people who come to mass uh, and who have some sort of a, a pietist relationship with God, who have some kind of popular piety that they participate in. They have a prayer life. Mm -hmm. But when relating to other people outside the faith, it seems like they stopped at the inferno. Yep. Yeah. No, I think I think that's so true. And again, it's easy. My students do this all the time uh, with Dante himself, because Dante is not afraid to name names, right? The church, as I frequently remind them, the church makes absolutely no declarations about any human person being absolutely for sure in hell. Right. The church makes no declaration about this. 
Dante but Dante does, does right? Yeah. All the time. To the point of, you know, Pope Boniface VIII isn't even dead yet. And he's got people saying, is that you, Boniface? Are you finally here, you nasty old sinner? Uh, <laughs> but, right, and, and, you know, again, there are lots of layers to the Divine Comedy. Some of them are political, right? And that's a big part of why he didn't like Pope Boniface VIII is the political party that he belonged to. But we get caught up in the names and we forget the name, even the names themselves, while they're meant to yeah, call out the corruption in his own day and age, to yeah, call out his enemies and say, "Look, these people are in hell. It sucks to be them. They should have been more like me." <laughs> uh, he's also trying to show us, to a large extent, there but for the grace of God go I, mm-hmm. right? And there is this. When you get to hell in in the Divine Comedy, you find so often that the person, like they're they're longing to be remembered because they've lost so much of a sense of who they actually are, because they've completely given in to sin. Mm-hmm. What we miss so often in our interactions with others is that that's something that happens after judgment, not before. Right. And that's that's, again, part of what I think people miss when it comes to their own kind of popular piety and looking to others is that person. Right. It's it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Right. Um, Like, God, you know, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, that I was born a Pharisee, all of these things. Uh, And, you know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right. It's Mm -hmm. that contrast that we so often miss and i think a a true and good reading of the divine comedy will to a certain extent help cure you of that especially as uh dante the pilgrim right the the protagonist of the text meets people he likes in hell right where you know virgil is constantly having to chastise the pilgrim of stop feeling pity for these people they are in hell. This is the will of God. It is no longer right to pity them, again, because they have faced not final, final judgment, but kind of pre-final judgment. Um, and yet, there are multiple times where Dante does, he meets people he knows and that he loved. Right? Teachers, people who aided him in his faith. The greatest example, of course, being Virgil himself who is, while not in the circles of punishment, circles two through nine, is nevertheless in hell, right? Is in limbo uh, and is not permitted to go any further. You know, and later in the book, you meet Statius, right? A poet who came to Christianity, according to Dante, because he read Virgil. And yet, right, Virgil is there. And so even as he's trying to show us the stark and harsh relationship that we should have to sin, he's not always willing to show that same harshness to the people themselves. Well, and I think it's it's worth noting um, that the point of the, the pilgrim going through this place was not so he could know what's right and what's wrong to call out others, 
the point for the pilgrim is for him to be able to assess that within himself. Right. It's, it's his own salvation, right? It's, he's told explicitly, you were headed to hell. Mm -hmm. And Mary talked to Lucy, who talked to Beatrice, who talked to me, Virgil, to come help you out. I am. I was recently uh, hanging around some some Byzantine priests. I had the opportunity to spend some time with them. I went out to uh, uh, to a uh, took them out for a meal, mm-hmm. and we were having this meal. And it was during a a specific penitential uh, time, preparing for a big feast. Uh, and so uh, one of them, and I shall not name any names, <laughs> but one of them had forgotten that it was this particular penitential season, uh, and realized after he had started eating that some of the things he was eating were not allowed. And the other priest said to him uh, this, and they kind of, they both knew this term and I loved this term uh, that the other priest said, yeah, just, you know, look to your own plate. And this idea that, yeah, I know it's the time to fast, but that's for me, right. for myself. Yep. I know I'm supposed to fast and I'm not going to look at anybody else's plate. Right. I'm going to look to my own plate. And I just, I loved that picture. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and again, that's, that's exactly, that's the pilgrim's job, right? The reason he's being shown even particular people within the confines of the narrative, right, is as examples to himself, right? You can even see him stopping along the way and noting the circles where, ooh, this is where I'd go. Or when he gets to purgatory and sees those essentially the same, it's not one-to-one, but the same sins being, you know, uh, purged. Ooh, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time on this terrace, uh, because that's, he's noticing now his own faults and how they're corrected. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us today, we're talking with Dr. David Russell Mosley. He's written a new book called The Love That Moves the Sun and Other Stars. It's available on Whippenstock, and it's uh, in it, it's a standalone work of poetry, but it's also a commentary on the Divine Comedy by Dante, uh, using the same kind of poetry, the same kind of meter as Dante used. And it's there's there's a poem per canto, if I recall correctly. Yeah. So we've spent some time in uh, in hell, uh, and again, we're, if you're just joining us, this is the book, The Divine Comedy. We've spent some time in hell, uh, and and now let's move uh, beyond our, our high school selves and get past that. We read that. Let's get further now. Yeah. Uh, take us to these next stages. Absolutely, and this this again is is the part that it's the part that I think most people struggle with. It's certainly the parts that my students struggle with. Hell is fun, right? It's gross. There's excrement. There's people getting (laughs) chewed. Um, Purgatory is still kind of fun because people have like their eyes sewn shut with iron wires. Uh, Don't ask how that happens when they're souls, not bodies. These are questions Dante kind of wants us asking, but then also is like, don't look at the man behind the curtain. Uh, t- it's po- it's poetry. <laughs> it's, it's not, this is not high theology, at least on its face value. This is poetry. Um, and then the Paradiso, right? Where we get these mm-hmm. grand um, examinations of theology itself. Uh, in fact, the pilgrim is examined by Peter, James, and John on faith, hope, and charity. Um, and so it's harder. It's harder to get through a little bit because we're being asked to imagine uh, 
something that we haven't really fully experienced here. Um, and yet, I think it's precisely for those reasons that it's so important to spend time in them. You know, we're shown the degradations of sin and hell, but it's in purgatory where we begin to learn, if I find that sin in myself, how can I overcome it? One of the terms that you'll hear thrown around by, by proper Dante scholars, which I, I do not pretend by any extent to be, but, but a term that you'll hear thrown around is contrapasso, uh, which is ultimately, it's this Italian term, and we could loosely define it as, uh, well, really you could loosely define it as the punishment fits the crime, but in like a really fun, poetic, irony kind of way. Uh, so for instance, I just mentioned people in purgatory having their eyes sewn shut with iron wire. Well, those people are those who struggled with envy as a sin. Uh, they can no longer look around right, and, and covet the goods of another. In fact, in the purgatorio, one thing to pay really close attention to are the eyes. Right, Where are the eyes of the souls in purgatory? Because most of the time they're either obfuscated, that is, something is blocking their field of vision so that they cannot see clearly, or they're literally directed downward. And it's because what they're being trained for is true sight, right? the beatific vision. And so they're being denied their vision now or having their vision corrected in a certain way so that when the correction is done, their eyes will be better suited to a sight that the pilgrim himself, as he also in his own way goes through all of this, frequently finds himself blinded, right? The goodness of God and even the goodness of his saints and angels is often too much for the pilgrim. And he needs the assistance of Beatrice, uh, who is his guide through heaven in particular, uh, to be able to see again. And so there is this, again, this strong importance of where are my eyes? Where am I looking? Right? You talk about that look to your own plate. That's, in a sense, precisely the lesson that he's being taught in purgatory is, right, look to yourself. Right? Don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye. Worry about the plank that's in yours. Um, and so it's, it's, to me, so absolutely wonderful because it can be read uh, almost as a, a, a moral treatise in the sense of how does one attain virtue, right? And or more importantly, to a certain extent for us, how does one get rid of vice, and the answer right. is to attain virtue, right? And so we see the corresponding virtues that come along these sins. And in, in purgatory, it's laid out with the seven deadly sins, right? That's our, we start at pride, we end at lust, right? From the worst to the least worst. Um, and how do we correct that, right? What are, the, what are the virtues? What are the prayers? Who are the people that we can look to as examples of that virtue? Well, and the, the the focus on virtue is, I think, so important. Specifically, I would I would gather for a person who might struggle with scrupulosity, mm -hmm. because the idea is for for the scrupulous person, if I can just get rid of this negative thing that I have, then all would be well. Right. Um, and and so there's this act of sheer willpower of I just need to get rid of this thing, when really our own will doesn't have enough oomph on right. its own. 
to dislodge the vice. It takes the, the, the presence of virtue coming in in order to push the vice out. Right. Absolutely. And even that sense of, if only I can get rid of typically this one thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, the Purgatorio reminds us that, you know, everybody spends at least a little bit of time in every terrace. It is, in, in Dante's world, it's a physical mountain on the southern hemisphere. Europeans in the Middle Ages didn't know for sure what was below the equator. Um, some thought it was even too hot to sail past, like you would die if you tried to sail past the equator. Um, and again, in their defense, the land that goes through that in places like Africa, you know, it's the Sahara Desert. It's not exactly a hospitable place to be trying to pass through if you're, uh, you know, a, a European used to colder climes and you're trying to make your way through Africa for the first time. Not going to succeed. So he, it's a physical mountain for him on the southern hemisphere. And so in order to go up it, you have to, well, go up it. You start at the beginning and you ascend through them all. You don't just fly to your particular terrace. So even if it wasn't a sin you struggled with, you still have to pass through it. And so we do that with the pilgrim, spending time in every sin, reminding ourselves that it's not just that one sin, right? It's a little bit of everything along the way. And exactly as you say, it's the grace of God that even puts you on the shores that allows you to progress. I'm going to imagine that you're going to allow me a little bit of a detour away from Dante and over to a little bit of Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as you're talking here, um, I get this picture of, there, there's this argument out there about the Lord of the Rings that, you know, really what should have happened and the movie would have been over, the book would have been over really fast, uh, is that they should have just ridden the eagles all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end. Right. And, and that would have been it. And that's what we want our spiritual life to be like. Yep. You know, just come come and pick me up on the eagles. I don't want to go through that difficult trudge through all right. of the all of the turmoil and all of the the places where there was war and all of the places where there's danger mm-hmm. so that I can get to achieve this final victory. I just want the eagle to take me all the way there and pat off the hands we're done. Yep. And it it seems that in our own spiritual life, we don't like it when the authors who put this journey into into poetry or into literature. We don't like it when they make it difficult yeah. because isn't life already difficult enough? Right. Oh, absolutely. No, if if you'll allow me a little detour away from Dante, although not as far in a sense, over to C.S. Lewis. Uh-huh. Uh, and this is going to be full circle because we're talking about the great divorce, which was Lewis's own kind of take on the divine comedy. I've always loved that book. And, you know, ultimately he says it's an allegory for the conversations that take place in life now, the decisions that we're making now. It's not really meant to be a depiction of the afterlife. But there's one in particular, uh, and it's the one that always sticks out to me. And it's a man who's walking around with a, a dragon or a lizard on his shoulder. And the conversation that we overhear isn't between him and another soul from heaven. It's an angel. Right? And the angel says... Essentially, you have to let me kill it. Right? So even when we say we want the the one-stop like shop, right? The the direct line to heaven, we forget that it, it won't be like, well, it would actually kind of be like trying to get on the eagles and fly all the way to Mordor, because that would have failed miserably, but I'm not gonna get into that today. <laughs> uh, we'll do that in the extra segment. We'll talk about that. 
But right, the the terror with which this man like confronts the fact that the only way to rid himself of whatever this pet sin is, and frankly, I think most likely it's lust that's being described there, is to kill it. Mm-hmm. And he even says, won't that kill me? And the angel essentially asks him, well, do you think that's worth it? And so yeah. finally he has to say yes. And it is terrible. And then. Yeah. Right. So even when when we want it to be this way, but we forget that the, the people who actually went through that, the people who did just like, all right, I am a saint now, did so through the quick sometimes, but most horrific means available to humankind. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so again, Dante's kind of laying out for us that in a sense, not that we should seek purgatory, but this is easier than the fast pass right up to heaven. It it goes, let's stick with literature. The, um, I think it's Flannery O'Connor who wrote the story of the young girl who said, um, I could be a saint if they kill me quickly. <laughs> Didn't, I don't, I don't know if I can be, I, I don't know if I could be a saint, but I could be a martyr if they kill me quickly. Right. And we, we want the easy way. Yeah. Um, but there is, there is a, a trudging journey that awaits us for the purpose of on the other side, the beatific vision. Right. Well, and to prepare us for it, right? That's that's again this thing that I think people miss when they read Dante is the the casual reader, right? Again, I'm not making claims about proper scholars of Dante, but the casual reader can miss is that sense of they need this. Mm-hmm. Right? It's God doesn't need this for them. They need it because they won't survive otherwise. Right. This is the thing that I think for my students especially can be such a struggle is when we talk about things like God, God does not have emotions. right? So God does not get angry because that's a change in God and God doesn't change. right? That's one of our first premises. God don't change. right? And so what we experience as his anger is a sinful state in the presence of pure love. Yeah. And that's that's in a big part. That's why the, the final line of the Divine Comedy is, you know, it's the pilgrim has now seen the beatific vision. He has been shown through revelation, right? Not through reason, which has been a big part of this. Virgil is not reason incarnate, but he kind of represents reason for the pilgrim and how far reason can take us. And it's pretty far. Right? He gets to the top of Mount Purgatory. But it can't go any further than that because revelation kicks in then, right? Revelation, not leaving reason behind, but with it continues on. So he sees all of this and then it's just, it's this effluence of, of beauty, of awe, of wisdom that leads him to talk about like, fine, I've seen the love that moves the sun and the other stars. That's the title of the book, The Love That Moves the Sun and the Other Stars, written by Dr. David Russell Mosley, available on Whippenstock. Come and be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. And we'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. David Russell Mosley about the book, The Love That Moves the Sun and Other Stars. It is a poetic treatment and commentary on Dante's Divine Comedy. It's available on Whip and Stock. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Really happy to be here. So, um, we, we spent a lot of time in... Uh, going through hell and going through purgatory. Hopefully our listeners have not endured that same journey uh, as we've done this. Uh, but now we want to get into a little bit of the beatific vision uh, and what Dante has to teach us as we are on our own pilgrimages, hopefully toward that same beatific vision. No, absolutely. Uh you know, we get to the Paradiso, and I think I've said like four times now, the thing that people struggle with most, and I'm about to say it again, because there are a lot of things. It's a hard book. It's a big yeah. book. It was written in Italian, um, which is its own like special category of coolness, because he was writing in Italian, not in Latin. But one of the other things, and I've seen this more when I've done the Divine Comedy with people with a Protestant background, uh, but even my my younger Catholic students struggle with the fact that Dante has a hierarchical heaven, right? When he, he decides to map it out on the medieval view of the cosmos, right? Of the heavens, as they called it. Uh, and so we start on the moon, right? And we progress through all seven visible planets to the naked eye, which includes the sun and the moon, because they behave like planets, not like stars. If your definition is thing that moves around and not in like a really stable flat fashion. Um, <laughs> and, but we start off there and the moon is probably the hardest one for a lot of people because as we progress, we meet people who they're on this particular planet because they had particular virtues or charisms or whatever word you want to use that relate to the uh, ancient and medieval conception of that planet. And it's true of the moon as well, but the moon isn't always known for really good things, right? We get our word lunatic uh, from the moon. I was just th singing in my head, there's a bad moon on the rise. Right. You know, this, the moon signals change for us here on earth, even though for the medievals, it is relatively speaking, unchanging. Relative because it does move and the sun and the earth pass through it and all that kind of stuff. So we get different shapes and eclipses and so on. Uh, what your listeners can't see is how much I move my hands around when I talk. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, we meet there people who wandered from their vows. Right. So the moon is also associated with wandering again of the wits, right? It's lunacy, but also of the feet. Dante decides to use it for people who wandered from their vows. And in particular, we meet a couple of former nuns who were press ganged into marriage. They were pulled from the convent and forced into marriages. Um, and Dante puts them at the lowest level of heaven. Right When he's leveling it out from the moon all the way up to the, the fixed stars, up to the constellations, they're in heaven but they're down at the bottom, right? Because they wandered from their vows. 
even though, you know, we could argue and he argues, right? Well, hang on a second. It wasn't really their fault. And all of these things, it's all, it can all be very difficult to, to grasp. But the really important thing that Dante is trying to show us with that is just as people will struggle with, especially today, the notion that for our medieval and even like for the church fathers, lust was the least deadly of the seven deadly sins because it's the most natural. And today we tend to look at it as one of the worst. Mm-hmm. It's still in hell, right? Like it's still yeah. one of the seven deadly sins. Just as that is the case, so too these people who wandered from their vows, whatever that means for them, they're in heaven. And the, he, the pilgrim even asked them, like, don't you wish you were somewhere else? Don't you wish you were higher up? And they say, no. This is the beatitude God has prepared for us. This is what we are capable of receiving. And so we are overjoyed. Now, he also makes sure to under, make sure that we understand they're not actually on the moon. They've come there to help the pilgrim understand the hierarchies in heaven. But they all exist in the Empyrean. They all exist in heaven itself. And so it's as we progress through paradise and as we move away from people who are kind of in heaven despite to people who are in heaven because, it never stops being the case that there's always kind of another level up. Like there's always something else, even to the point then where we see Mary sitting in uh, what Dante describes as the celestial rose, this beautiful golden rose, uh, which is basically a big amphitheater filled with seats, some of which are empty because they're awaiting the souls who are still journeying there. And you see Mary sitting essentially up at the top, right? And angels are literally dancing and playing for her delight. Right. And it's just, again, that reminder of it's God's grace that is doing this. And there, to an extent, there's always somebody better than you because it's not about being better than someone else. It's about being better than who you were before. Yeah. So let's move uh, a little bit away from the poetry of Dante and from the Divine Comedy, because the purpose of this book for Dante was to point to a a deep theological reality using language that, um, that, like a sponge, was capable of holding the amount of water Mm -hmm. that he needed to hold. Um, Let's pretend for the moment that I and and the listeners here are your high school students. And it's your job to explain to us what in the heck this Italian was getting at with this whole thing. Uh, As we are now uh, on our own journeys, Mm. hopefully toward the beatific vision, what are maybe the key things that we can take from, from Dante were the things that you were pointing out and that you have learned to appreciate more deeply through your process of writing your book, The Love That Moves the Sun and Other Stars, um, that will help us as we process and progress towards our final end. Yeah. It's it's exactly that. It's that sense that this is a it's a pilgrimage, right? There's a reason why 
often the protagonist, who is Dante himself as a character in the book, we refer to him as the pilgrim, not just because he's going on a journey, but because it is a proper pilgrimage, right? That this is a journey to a specific end, right? Which is the beatific vision itself. And he wants us to go with him, right? To grow alongside him. This is the case in most stories that include some kind of everyman character, right? To go back to Tolkien for a moment, that's Bilbo in The Hobbit, right? Despite the fact that he's short and has furry feet, he and, and we experience the irregularity of the world of dwarves and elves and men in the same way, because that's not the world we live in. We live in a world that's much closer to the world that Bilbo Baggins lives in. And it's the same thing here, right? Dante, even when he's showing us all of this political stuff, all of these things, that's the world we all live in. What he's showing us is that there's something deeper and truer at work behind the scenes here. And our job, as it were, is to be on that journey, right? Towards those deeper things. Um, and even, and this, this is an argument that, that I make, I haven't found a lot of other people who, who say this, but that in a way, the Divine Comedy itself is, uh, and I, I think I may have said this the last time I was on talking about Dante, but it is kind of a reflection on the Sacrament of Reconciliation itself, right? Mm -hmm. That in the Inferno, right, rather than laughing at the horrific punishments of the sinners there, we should be looking at our own sins, right? That examination of conscience that takes place before we go into confession to say, these are my sins and and this is where they're trying to lead me. Right? Th this is the consequence of staying with that. And then in purgatory, right, being reminded then, but because of God's grace, I don't have to stay there. And I can cooperate with God's grace and attain virtue, which will directly destroy the vices in my life. And all of that is preparing me for paradise. And even then, there's still stuff that I don't know, right? Which is why so much of the Paradiso is built up on, like, yeah, we're going to build up this knowledge. We're going to test the pilgrim. We're going to ask him lots of questions. He's going to ask lots of questions. But in the end... It's that moment, that ecstatic vision of the beatific vision that essentially drives everything else away. It's it's like the story of, of St. Thomas Aquinas, who he's praying uh, in a chapel and the, the crucifix begins to speak to him and, and says something along the lines of, you've been such a faithful servant. Um, you know, what do you what do you want to a certain extent? It's you, Lord. And he's shown Christ. And mm -hmm. in response to that, he says, Everything I have done in contrast to this vision is as straw fit to be burned. Yeah. And, and that's, that's so much of what Dante is trying to do for us is to get us to see that these things are important in media res, right? A term we steal from Dante in the middle of things. But at the end, the goal all of that in comparison is nothing. Yeah. I want to address one more thing uh, before we finish up today, and that is the place and the role of poetry 
in explaining these deep things. Uh, and specifically, I call to mind when I was uh, doing faith formation and evangelization, I was over that for a specific parish. I'm walking through the halls on my first Sunday at this parish, and I hear uh, a catechist from like the third grade room say out loud to the children, no children, I can guarantee you that there is no fire in purgatory. I guarantee you it's not it's not what's there. Now, what this what this person could have said, and if you're listening and you've said this and you're that person, this is what you could have said. When we're in purgatory, we will not have bodies. And so our spirits cannot be affected by physical fire. However, there is something in the way that fire behaves that the authors who talk about fire want to get across. And so there will be things in purgatory that may correlate to what we understand fire to be, but it's not the same physical thing because you won't be physical. I think so often we look at things like the Divine Comedy and other poetry that's out there and other figurative language that's out there. And we say, oh, well, this isn't real because this is just poetry. And so since it's not scientific, I can dismiss it. And I'd like you to speak to that just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's so prevalent. Uh, and there are, if we wanted to do a genealogy of why that's the case, we could find lots of figures who help. Bring I blame Scooby-Doo. Yeah, we, we could, we <laughs> <laughs> bring us to this world where yeah everything everything has to be at that kind of literal level um and what a big part of what poetry and figurative language and literature and fiction and all of these things can do for us and it's not all that they do they have their own ends they can be for enjoyment and entertainment but so much of what they do is remind us that the things that you can see taste, touch, smell, and hear are not all that there is. And that there is, not only is there something deeper, but we can experience that something deeper. And the only way that we can describe it is through analogies, right? Through figurative and poetic language, because it's too big and it's too real for our our language to fully be able to articulate. And so we have to have it in order to even begin to understand. Yeah. We've been talking today with Dr. David Russell Mosley. The book is The Love That Moves the Sun and Other Stars. It's available on Whip and Stock. Uh, when we, uh, we're going to have a little bit of an extra segment available to all of our Patreon supporters in which we will be speaking about why they would not have made it to Mordor if they had tried to take the Eagles. And if that's the content that you're after, uh, come over and join us over at go to outsidethewalls.com, click the Patreon link, and there you can find the link to that extra segment. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. If you missed any part of this conversation with Dr. David Russell Mosley, maybe you want to go and listen to the whole thing again, catch something you missed, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. 
All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, maybe you want to make sure you never miss an episode. Well, we've got links to all your favorite podcast aggregators from Apple Podcasts to Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and so much more. You can find the links to your favorite podcast aggregator and subscribe there. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention today to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, Biblical Commentaries, Original Language Research, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians, chapter 3. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things— and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded, and if in anything you were otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and mark those who so walk as you have an example in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. That reading comes from the book of Philippians, the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians, chapter 3. I gravitated toward this passage of Scripture and also toward our reading from church history coming up in a moment because of its connection to the idea of pilgrimage and towards specifically the pilgrimage towards uh, resurrection, towards the beatific vision. And here Paul, as he is talking to the Philippians, is laying out a case for how he lives his life and why that way of living a life is worthy of imitation. And he says all of the accolades and the things that that you might otherwise think were positives and wins and uh, things that would be uh, celebrated, all of these things I count as loss, and not only loss, but as refuse, as rubbish, some translations say, in order 
that I may be that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Right? All of the things that others would celebrate, I'm going to put it on my balance sheet as if it's a loss. I'm going to forget about it. I'm I think that it in some way holds me back and diminishes me from what I otherwise could have and what I could have is to be found in Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And so he's laying out a case here that we also see, and we'll read towards the end of our reading from church history in the book of Colossians chapter three, right? Where he says, uh, set your mind on things above and not on things of earth, where Christ is seated at the right hand of, of the Father. And he talks about taking off all of the things that the world celebrates and putting on Christ. And here, towards the end of this passage, he even moves more clearly towards talking about the appetites, asking the question in a roundabout way, what are the things that you're going to choose uh, as fulfilling? What are you going to set your mind on in terms of the goal that if I achieve this, I will have won, I will be satisfied, I will find fulfillment? And he speaks of those who look for fulfillment in their appetites, in the ideas of, of pleasure. And he says, uh, many whom I've uh, often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And Paul talks about earthly things and heavenly things and where we set our minds. He does this in a couple of different places. But the ultimate question is this, where are you going to find your fulfillment? And this is the same question that that Dante explores as he is through the Divine Comedy traversing through the various planes of the afterlife and seeing where people fall based on what they saw as their ultimate goal and what they saw as the thing that they believed would fulfill them. And for some, they find themselves not only unfulfilled, but forever unfulfilled. For others, they who have achieved the beatific vision are able to hold that thing that they longed for because they set their minds on things above. So Dante and also Paul here are giving us a warning and an invitation into a, a lifestyle that will actually fulfill us, not only in the here and now, but also eternally so. We're also going to hear that from our reading from church history today, which comes from a homily by St. Augustine, which he preached on the octave of Easter to those who had just been baptized. I speak to you who have just been reborn in baptism, my little children in Christ, you who are the new offspring of the Church, gift of the Father, proof of Mother Church's fruitfulness. All of you who stand fast in the Lord are a holy seed, a new colony of bees, the very flower of our ministry and fruit of our toil, my joy and my crown. It is the words of the Apostle that I address to you. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and its desires, so that you may be clothed with the life of him who you have put on in the sacrament. 
You have all been clothed with Christ by your baptism in him. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Such is the power of this sacrament. It is a sacrament of new life which begins here and now with the forgiveness of all past sins and will be brought to completion in the resurrection of the dead. You have been buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that as Christ has risen from the dead, you also may walk in newness of life. You are walking now by faith, still on pilgrimage in a mortal body away from the Lord. But he to whom your steps are directed is himself the sure and certain way for you, Jesus Christ, who for our sake became man. For all who fear him, he has stored up abundant happiness, which he will reveal to those who hope in him, bringing it to completion when we have attained the reality which even now we possess in hope. This is the octave day of your new birth. Today is fulfilled in you the sign of faith that was prefigured in the Old Testament by the circumcision of the flesh on the eighth day after birth. When the Lord rose from the dead, he put off the mortality of the flesh. His risen body was still the same body, but it was no longer subject to death. By his resurrection, he consecrated Sunday, or the Lord's Day, through the th- though the third after his passion, this day is the eighth day after the Sabbath, and thus also the first day of the week. And so, your own hope of resurrection, though not yet realized, is sure and certain, because you have received the sacrament or sign of this reality, and have been given the pledge of the Spirit. If then you have risen with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your heart on heavenly things, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ your life appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. That reading again comes from uh, an octave of Easter homily by St. Augustine. Perhaps the most challenging thing for us as disciples is to maintain an eternal perspective, to remember that we are on a temporary pilgrimage towards an eternal destination. And to take the lesson from Dante and from St. Paul and from St. Augustine, that the things that we choose today to fulfill our desires are going to have lasting and long-term impacts. And so set our minds together on things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Fix our eyes on Jesus and press on towards the goal, towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, knowing that any other thing that we could claim as a victory is nothing but loss in comparison with the joy of being found in Him. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Anil and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. 
And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.